This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My guest today, he's an MHP specialist. He's a broker. He's, he's out of Denver. He's with one of the big national firms, CBRE. Uh, he knows all things brokerage. Uh, please help me welcome my guest, John Shea. John, thanks for coming on, man. First, really good to be here. Appreciate it, man. Hey, you got it. So I, I know you a little. I know you a little bit. Um, I'm in your. I'm in your database. You're creeping on me with uh, you're looking at all my information. But uh, I'm just. Yeah, I think, go ahead. I think you're 37, right? Yeah, something like that. I'm not. I think I'm 37 years old. Yeah, is that right? I'm not. I'm younger than that. Believe it or not, I'm. I'm a I'm 36. I will be oh, 37 on August 28th. You can send me a card. Um, I will. That's I didn't even know you had my age in there. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm third before. So actually I got I see like online people like, are you 67 years old? Like, no, that would be <laughs> are you 110? No, that would be someone that's deceased. But no, I know you got me in the database. Um, you got a whole bunch of stuff in there. Uh, I know you've been in the business for about 10 years, sold a lot of mobile home parks. Tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into MHP and kind of how you've seen you know, I, I want to talk also about where you've seen it come. You've been in the industry more than a lot of guys, and I want to know your view of where you think it's going next. Sure. Uh, you know, like a lot of people, I grew up as a lad hoping to get into trailer parks, <laughs> you know, all of us. And uh, no, I actually I wanted to be a military officer. Both my parents were Navy officers. My dad was late fours in the Navy. Um, I was Air Force ROTC and it was 2008, the economy tanked and they didn't need any pilots and they didn't need any officers. And so uh, they started kind of cutting people. And I, I had done pretty well as a cadet, but um, they, uh, I, I needed a, a medical waiver for a tiny issue and they just stopped doing all waivers. So that path kind of dried up hmm. and I <clears throat> wanted to keep flying. And uh, I didn't really want to be an airline pilot. And so I was like, all right, well, how can I, how can I figure out how to get into flying, like fly my own plane without, uh, without really a business degree and without being in the military and without being uh, an airline pilot. And so I kind of thought, all right, I could get into brokerage. Uh, I don't know anything about it at all. And when I started, I mean, it took me for like three or four months to figure out what a cap rate is. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to sound stupid for all your listeners, but uh, I just didn't know anything about finance. Uh, I was a political science guy and uh, kind of kind of got into brokerage uh, in Minneapolis, actually, after I left the University of Minnesota. And from there, um, I started out doing office um, office brokerage hmm. and I didn't really like it. And I was, I'm from Denver and kind of wanted to move back. And I, I found an opportunity, uh, to stay in brokerage, but do manufactured housing in Denver. And even at that point, I didn't really want to 
I had no real desire to be manufactured housing. It was just like, oh, that sounds like an interesting opportunity. So uh, I left office brokerage and, and made my way back to Denver uh, and started doing manufactured housing brokerage here. That's kind of how I got into it. Nice. Interesting, interesting story. I didn't know you were a pilot. So do you, do you fly now at all? Uh, like have a private, yeah. a, a private plane or a hobby plane or anything like that? Or not yet? Not at this point. And I know a couple of my broker colleagues in the industry have that. And uh, I think that's still an ambition. Uh, I really enjoy it. I haven't flown in uh, probably five years or so, but uh, okay. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, I, I actually... Uh, I remember here. I remember the stories of you know ROTC and just the military kind of you know it was during the Obama administration. Also, they started cutting back on some of the officer deployments. I had an internship with the Army JAG Corps, believe it or not, and same oh, wow. same sort of thing happened where I was I was not ROTC. They called it FLEP. I think it was for the guys that were active that became went through law school on the Army dime, and then those guys got all the spots right. So they because they already had trained them and they had you know already given service country. So guys like me that were looking into it that had no mills or experience they're like you're at the bottom of the line you know so uh anyway same sort of i, I wasn't sure i was gonna do it or not but same sort of feel i was i was looking into it and decided to become a real estate guy instead you know i'd already been in real estate a little bit actually during law school before oh, okay but as far as as far as military uh yeah it's kind of cool man <laughs> it, it's kind of crazy the way a, a lot of folks in this industry whether you're a broker or an operator owner uh, you know, I don't think anyone really sets out to, to be in the mobile home park industry. And that, so as a result of that, I think there's a really interesting mix of people from all different backgrounds that you just don't see, um, you just don't see in, in other industries. I think that's a fair point. I think the only people that I know that are, that were like pursuing this industry are second generation. They're like, my parents, right. my parents had 10 parts or something. And all that. then we, we realized we grew up in it. We, we poured the sewer line, we poured the concrete pads, we dug the sewer lines and we saw mom and dad make good money. So we pursued it. Right. But yeah, guys like me, guys like you, that we just, it wasn't, it wasn't there on career day. Like, oh, I want to be a, in the trailer park business. No, I mean, even just, <laughs> even frankly, even just real estate. I mean, I had a degree in finance accounting from a quality business school and there were no real estate classes. I learned about real estate from books during grad school because one of my my supervisor at work was like you should read rich dad poor dad okay so then i'm like started just devouring real estate books but the, among other things in this country that you know education offering was, was weak as it pertains to real estate 100 percent. and actually you mentioned it that that book by uh his name's robert kiyosaki right yeah. that that was sort of the thing that that piqued my interest in real estate too. I had never really thought of it before. And I think there's probably uh, a million people in real estate investments that read that book at one point and hadn't really considered it as a career and like, huh, that's interesting. And, and I think the book is great as an intro. Um, obviously it kind of recommends some things that don't really make sense these days, but uh, it's a great book to kind of get the juices flowing in terms of of interest in the business. Yeah, absolutely. I tell people all the time, it's a great book to give you the fire in the belly. And you're like, I need to quit my job and do this. And then you're right. like, and now what? I, where's like the tangent? He's got a whole series. I've read all his books. I've been to the conference and stuff. It's, he's got right. a lot of, 
deeper stuff. But as far as that book, you're just like, but how do I do it? You know, so <laughs> looks good on a spreadsheet, so to speak. But uh, just buy something for less than it's worth. It's like okay, <laughs> it's cash flow. Yeah, great. Yeah. No, it's but it's 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 a classic. That, that's for sure. So, totally. um, well, that's great. Well, so you, having been in the business for a long time. You know what, and and, get, and fall and kind of falling into it, so to speak, or, or get back dooring into it. How you know how, what's your experience been, and just watching the industry change. I mean, I've been in it for about the same amount of time, and in different different aspects. But it's like, on my end, it's 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 changed dramatically. Um, you're you're touching more deals and more markets, and dealing with more people and buyers than me, uh, buyers and sellers. What, what have you seen? What have you seen in the last seven, eight, ten years? You know, I started out as, uh, I, I started in brokerage 2011, but by 2012, I had transitioned into manufactured housing. And I started as a runner for a, uh, a pretty successful team here in the Denver area. And they basically uh, had me build a database and they put me to work uh, just, just researching. And I did a lot of that. Um, which I think was actually helpful in retrospect, but the time was kind of boring. Um, but at the time, you know, you could buy a reasonable mobile home park in 2012 at like a eight and a half to 10 cap. I mean, these are not five-star beautiful parks, but like something just totally reasonable. And, you know, interest rates granted were a bit higher, but they, the spread between cap rates and interest rates at the time was much larger. And, uh, you know, just to see kind of the, the market shift from not really paying attention to mobile home parks to, to being like, oh man, this is a great asset. This is a great investment. I need to get involved. I mean, it's changed massively in 10 years. And, and I think that there's folks probably listening to this podcast and there's certainly folks that aren't listening to this podcast that have been in the business for 30 years and they're like, yeah, this young guy doesn't even understand. It used to, it used to be even better. So I, I don't even need to discount how much it changed before I got into it. But just uh, during the time I've been doing this, uh, people have really um, come around to the asset class just as a great investment. So I, I, I think that's been the main change. Um, the other thing that that really was prevalent when I started. Um, I'd hear from a lot of buyers who who had clearly been to one of the one of the bigger training courses. I'm sure the people on podcasts are familiar with them, but you know they'd call and be like, "I want uh, 50, 50 spaces plus city sewer, city water, hundred thousand MSA." Uh, what, eight, cap, eight cap plus. You forgot yeah. that no park on yeah. homes. Um, <laughs> I probably got like four or five calls a week like that for a very long period of time. And I would say that is less prevalent than it used to be. But um, the folks that went to those courses um, definitely, um, I think, have kind of shaped the business a lot, uh, just in terms of that we have so many more buyers than we used to. Um, that's my impression, at least maybe some other brokers have a different perspective, but it certainly seems to me like uh, there's a lot, there's a lot more people going for the same limited number uh, of, of assets. 
I, I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, I've been, I've been to those boot camps and seminars and stuff too, and there's a lot of good information in them, but I, I definitely know that there's, you know, there's a desirable perfect park and you've kind of described it, you know, 50 plus a hundred is even better if you can get 200 better. And there's only so many of those, right. And guess what? There's the, the big players are going for those hundred pet parks first as well. So we've tried to make a little bit of niche getting stuff, you know, between 20 and 80, I'd love to own more hundred pet parks. Right. But, you know, 67 in a good market's kind of nice too, right? So um, I think you're right that there's a, a big influx of buyers and that has, you know, helped, you know, push rates, cap rates down. It's helped professionalize the industry in many respects. It's definitely brought more competition. Um, how are you, how do you deal with buyers now, right? You, you had that that pesky first-time buyer with, with this, you know, quote, unreasonable deal restriction. Now, I mean, if I'm a first-time buyer, how do I get your attention? Or if I'm, if I'm a medium-sized buyer, I've got five to 10 parks and you've got a 200, I know recently you had a, you know, multi-pad portfolio, you know, hundreds of pad portfolio you were selling. Can a small player get your attention on one of those or, you know, you can require proof of funds or you can require me to put forward the portfolio showing you what I've got um, to get your attention or how, do, how does that work in, in today's you know, really hot economy for this asset class? I think if you're a new buyer and you're getting space, um, and I, I think even other people that have come on this show have, have talked to you about it. Um, before you even see the community that you want to purchase, you probably should be talking to uh, as many brokers as you can uh, and getting to know them and, and them getting to know you. Um, you know, we had a deal recently that a, uh, a buyer came out of, of nowhere. I hadn't met them before and they came over the top with a, with a crazy high number and, you know, paying a good price is great. Um, but when you're kind of an unknown quantity, it makes people a little bit nervous or it makes me nervous. I guess I can't speak for everyone, yeah. but, um, you know, we ended up, um, not selling them that particular deal, but as a result of that sort of beginning of a conversation, we were able to get to know them. Uh, and we ended up selling them another deal down the road, but, um, you know, don't be bashful. I, I think, you know, brokerage uh, is a business where our, our only real asset is, is time and maybe our knowledge, uh, but time is, is a big one. And so, you know, there's plenty of brokers out there that will take the time to get to understand you as a buyer, get to know you, uh, get to understand what your acquisition criteria is. And then when that deal comes available, um, they should probably already know that you're you're a good buyer for it. Um, so I really think it's just it's just like anything else. You kind of got to network with people, but you know, brokers were used to talking to people all day long. Um, so you know, just try and call people. Keep bugging them. So some guys uh, and gals uh, are kind of busy and and it, they don't get back to you right away, but. But stick with it because I think that they'll, uh, I, I think that you will benefit as a buyer from having those conversations and relationships with people. But it's kind of one of those things where you just got to do it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, just it's time is money, right? And you're at, I mean, if I'm asking to steal some of your time, I better make it worth your investment, right? I need to show you I'm a real player, show you I want to be, and 
you know, get to know each other better before just a number, right? I've, I, I have clients that they'll ask me or the broker who's a seller broker will ask me like, Hey, we got two offers. What do you think? And it's like, well, one's bigger, one's a bigger number, but it's the one was a recent one. The guy was an apartment guy from Chicago and he only did Chicago properties and his attorney sent over a contract that was the Chicago realtors contract, which apparently most states have their own form state contract. But Chicago has their own form Chicago contract. Right. This is for a trailer park in downstate Illinois. And there was there were representations and warranties as it pertained to the HVAC system. And the guy was like, we can't modify the contract, sign it as is. I'm like, there's no HVAC system. You know, right. it, it was just like, come on. And so it makes you a, a, an inferior buyer, all else being equal, when you show us you have no experience, when you show us you don't know what you're doing. So you're gonna you're gonna need a bigger price, and even then you may not be worth the the, the seller or the broker taking seriously. So building rapport, building some you know known quantity factor, you know, certainly makes just makes sense. Totally, and you know, on that offer point, um, we have it, and I'd imagine that that most of my brokerage colleagues have uh, something similar. We have you know, kind of just a standard LOI template. So, you know, even if you don't uh, have a Chicago real estate contract, uh, just just ask. I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Uh, if you ask like, hey, do you, have, do you have something you want me to use for an LOI? Uh, I think most of us have something we can send you and you can just fill it out. Um, but kind of on that note, um, when you do make an offer, just make sure that your terms are as clear as your price. So, you know, what's the earnest money? When is it non-refundable? How long do you need for inspection? How long do you need for financing? Do you need financing? Um, and, and just just have a lot of clarity on terms because, you know, the market's so competitive right now that a lot of these decisions that that sellers are making come down to the terms at the end of the day. Uh, sometimes more so than the price. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, in our LOI, we try to do short due diligence because you know I don't have the biggest bank account in the industry, right? So I, I'm not going to win a price war against right. some player with 100 parks. But sure. I'm on site, I'm local. I'll go look at the park right now and I'll, I'll give you 20-day DD and I'll put up a big, a big earnest money and I'll, I can close right after that. I got a great banking relationship. So my value add as a buyer is, is not going to be 105% of list price. Right. But it's going to be, I'm not tying up 20 deals at once and they're going to drop a, drop half of them on the day that DD is over. Right. My, my plan is to tackle, you know, one deal a month or one deal every two or three months. And I want to focus on, you know, I and mean, one a month's probably too many, right. I'm looking at one a quarter maybe, but right. that's my, that's my value. Add, right? And if I, if I tell the broker that I maybe get a little more attention than if I just, Throw a number at it. 100%. Yeah. Let's talk about price for a second. You mentioned a minute ago the guy that first time, his first time park, he threw out a number that was unreasonably high or, or over list. And obviously your client, the sellers, in some respects, loving that. Uh, I'm curious, you know, we talked about the industry just being hot right now, buyers. I'm curious how, you, how you're seeing the marketplace adapt to uh, pro forma rents. And for our listeners who don't know what that means, I mean, I'll, I'll see a park where my lot rents 400, this market's 550. But the seller is, you know, the seller is going to say, hey, look, I got 10 vacant lots. 
I've seen brokers put in there that, hey, market rent's 550 and they want to value it at 550 and then cap do a capitalization rate on that pro forma income and then sell it and say, hey, look, it's a seven cap. Like, well, it's seven cap if I up the rent 150, but practically, I think I'm not going to do that. Maybe, well, maybe over four years or something, five years, but I'm not going to do it in one year. And, I, and it's hard for me to value it or, or pay for it on pro forma income based on actuals, that same number on 400 income per lot, I might be at a, instead of a seven cap, I might be at a 4.5 cap, which doesn't make a lot of economic sense for me. Um, I'm seeing that more and more in offering memorandums. Is that, the, are you seeing that? Is that the norm? Is there a reasonable answer? I think that's kind of crazy personally, um, but I, is, there, is there something I'm missing where like, that's reasonable that, oh no, it's, that's what, you know, the market is, or that's what, it's going to go to, and, and I see, and I see a lot of guys split the difference, um, but it's a combination of splitting the difference on vacant pads and on pro forma rents that I feel like I didn't see 18 months ago. I think that's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of folks in this business who, uh, who do that. I think there's also a lot of great brokers in this business that don't do that. Um, I think from a perspective of, you know, as, bro as brokers, or at least as a broker in Colorado, and I think in most states, you're a fiduciary to your client. So you're always trying to do what's in the best interest of your client. I think part of what that includes is, is being honest with them about where the market's at for this particular park. Um, part of that is also getting them the highest price that you can. So there is a little bit of splitting the difference um, and I think it depends too, because if it's a, if it's a pro forma, that's based on the same occupancy rate, but maybe they haven't raised rents in three years and, you know, uh, markets at 500, they're currently at 400, but you're raising it, you know, between 10 and 15%, which is way more than, you know, your standard rent increase, which I believe is about 4.9%, um, I think that that is a little more defensible than pretending that, you know, whoever the buyer is, is, is going to come in and, and raise rents 150 bucks. Um, you know, I'm sure that you've seen it and I'm sure that people listening to this have, have seen it. Uh, there's a couple groups out there that have, have raised rents, you know, 70% overnight. And um, I think that that is, uh, beneficial to the person that does it, but I, I think it can tend to uh, make things more difficult for the industry as a whole over time, because I think kind of a natural reaction to that is, is legislatures creating laws that, that prevent you from doing that. So um, to answer your question, I don't think it's a, it's a great uh, standard of practice to to include a $150 rent increase, uh, you know, on a $400 lot rent park. Um, but I understand why people do it. Uh, part of it is it's, you know, brokerage is really competitive and, and you're trying to get listings and, and part of doing that is demonstrating somehow that you can get the best value for that seller who's your right. client. Um, and part of it is just trying to get your client uh, 
the most value uh, for hiring. And, and so I think that if I'm in your shoes as a buyer, I completely recognize how you feel about it. And at the same time, I can see why uh, some, some brokers do that. I, I don't know if that answered your question. No, I, I mean, I, th- I think, I think it did. And I think it, it you answered how I thought it was, um, you know, it's a, it's a largely broker saying, look, uh, this part's worth 2 million, but I'm not gonna get the listing because the guy, the other broker told me I can, they'll give you 2.5 million. Okay. How am I gonna get to 2.6? Uh, yeah, Mr. Seller, I can get to 2.6. Here's the way we got to do it. We need to show that there's pro forma rents. We need to, you know, capitalize park on home income. We need to, you know, show an occupancy increase. And then it's quote reasonable at a seven cap, and we'll list it, and hopefully get close to that number. And you and I may say that that's kind of crazy, but the market's so hot, we see guys paying, right? I've I've seen many deals. I've lost out on several deals that got tied up at a price that I said that is not doable. That is not bankable. That's not going to get appraised. That's not going to cash flow, and it closes. And it turns out some guy with a lot more money paid cash and didn't and either didn't care or didn't know better. And, you know, give it to the seller. I, I had no other sellers. He, this guy had 146 pad park that was full 15 years ago and 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And he just let it go. It was down to 80 occupied. And he sold it for 700,000 more than it was worth. And he sold the cash to some guy that bought 30 parks in one quarter with New York money. Like, well, Good, good for you, Bob. You just got you just got three and a half million dollars on a park you were running in, were in the process of running into the ground, and good, so good for you. But it's just what it, it frustrates me is that it feels like it distorts market economics. That's part of the market. So maybe it's back when I was doing finance. It was there was an efficient market hypothesis and an inefficient market hypothesis, and and I'm not sure which one we're in right now. Um, but it is it is a non it is it is a market transaction. So Maybe that's the new norm and buyers need to adapt. But um, brokers obviously are, play a vital role of setting pricing and the and competitiveness of brokers. Obviously, in competition requires setting some pricing and, and setting some different thresholds for, for your clients. But it's just been interesting to watch because I, I feel like what would have been laughed at 18 months ago is becoming normal today from a valuation standpoint. Percent, and and if I could add on to that, just from a broker perspective, um, I think that, gosh, I think that there's uh, there's a certain hesitancy among some clients that represented to underprice an asset. Um, I actually think that if you hire a broker, which I think you should. And when I started, I started at this company, Marcus and Millichap, and, you know, we, we learned about the value proposition of hiring a broker. And, you know, I kind of learned it, wrote memorization. I just thought it was something that you were supposed to say. Um, but, you know, having been doing this so long, uh, I really do believe in the, in the value proposition of a broker. Um, so much so that when I've sold my own assets, I've hired someone else. And, and you know, sometimes it was, um, uh, and these aren't mobile home parks, just little stuff around Denver. But, uh, you know, I'll hire someone uh, because I, I want to hire someone that knows the market and understands, you know, 
the buyers. And, and so I don't think that folks should really worry about underpricing an asset. What they should really worry about is what their broker is going to do for them once that asset is listed. You know, what is the marketing process going to look like? Who are the buyers that they already know that want to buy the property? Um, I, I think that you said brokers are vital. And, and obviously, I, I think a lot of people do a lot of off-market transa transactions, and that's reasonable. Um, but, you know, we kind of talked a little about a bit about how assets are overvalued. Um, but... I actually don't even think that the value that you agree to list a property at, uh, it's important to have an understanding of what things are worth. And I'm not discrediting that, but, but what's the most important is what that broker is going to do for you when you hire them. And I, I know you've had a couple other uh, folks on here that, that are in the business and uh, they're all, all four of them, I think, are, are really good brokers. And so those are the types of folks that you want to hire, people that really understand how to market a property, uh, because that part's not automatic. You can't just send out an e-blast and hope that people are going to make offers. I mean, there's a lot of nuts and bolts to, to actually getting it from a signed listing to the closing table. And I think in terms of our value proposition, that's, that's really important to folks. And, and I think it's something that's not talked about very much. No, I think I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm looking to buy an office building or rent an office building for my my team here, and I have my broker's license. I I work and live in Kansas City, and I've been here for a long time. But I hired a broker that knows office buildings better than me, right? The guys on the CCIM board with me, and that's his space, right? He's an office guy. So yeah, I mean, he's going to add value. He's going to negotiate better. He's going to save me some work, frankly, too, to go find me the right deal. So I think it makes sense. Now I know. I know you told me before the show, you got your own database. You kind of built your own database and kind of you're geeking out on access and how to make this thing, make this thing special. Um, is there anything you can share on just on, you know, as far as that, as far as how to find, you know, so maybe something can help us that are non-brokers on how do I find a seller? How do I find a deal? And then I'm also just curious in your opinion, because you have, you have access to so much data that you've been you know, kind of creating for, for years how far away are we from full consolidation? And I don't think we'll ever get fully consolidated, but you know, the hundred pad park in a medium to large Metro that's still owned by a small owner that owns one or two parks. How many of those are left? Um, or has the big players gobbled up all of them? Um, Cause you know, I feel like, you know, and I get people, I don't know, once a month, somebody on LinkedIn will send me something. It's like literally the same stump email. It says, we are, we are in the business of consolidating the industry. If we were looking for parks of this size and we're looking for a lawyer to join our board, it's a, don't worry, you don't have to kick in equity. You're going to get a portion of profits. And it's a non-paid position, by the way, but you're perfect for it. You know, I'm like, I literally get the same offer, three other guys, all of them just graduated high school too. And no, thank you. But they, they these guys seem to think that all they got to do out, go out there is they went to the boot camp, they know the stump speech, they know the back and napkin valuation. And they're like, great. I'm just going to go consolidate industry, me and my buddies. And I think it's going to be a little harder than that. I feel like it's already um, quite a ways down the field. There's still a lot of parks up there that are mom and pop, but there's a lot that of the, you know, premier properties that, are, that have been gobbled up. So I'm curious in your opinion on that. Well, 
my initial reaction is I, I was at MHI in Las Vegas probably about five years ago. And I had a meeting with a guy uh, from California. He's a big, big apartment owner, really good guy. Um, and I was sitting ac across from him wherever we were, whatever, whatever hotel MHI was at that year. Um, and he was like, I'm going to be the number, I'm going to be a top five mobile home park owner uh, in the next five years. And, you know, that was for me half my career ago. Uh, but even at the time, I remember thinking, there are people in this business that have been doing this for 40 years and they don't, you know, uh, I would imagine many of them would like to be the top five mobile home park owner. And these, these folks know way more about this business than I do. And they, and they certainly know more about this business than this apartment owner that I was talking to. And, you know, I, I appreciated the guy's candor and ambition, but I think the idea that some external force is going to come in and just consolidate the business more than, more than Sam Zell already did in, in the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, and then the folks that followed after that at some of the other bigger companies, uh, I just, I have a hard time seeing how that's going to happen because those folks are all still looking for, uh, for assets to buy. And they, they have significantly more experience. They're significantly better capitalized. They have teams with institutional memories that are in the thousands of years. So it's, it's hard for me to imagine that, that, some group that is pretty green in the industry is going to come in and just consolidate a bunch of uh, assets. And uh, to answer your question about full consolidation, um, you know, uh, without getting too much into the secret sauce, um, I hear a lot about, you know, how there's not really as many opportunities anymore. Um, and I can see why people say that. But if I look at the profile of, of sellers that, that I've uh, built uh, just through experience and just trying to look at different aspects of, of who these sellers are, um, I think there's still a significant amount of opportunity uh, somewhere in the realm of you know, 30 to 40% of the parks out there, I, I think are still, uh, you know, people that own one, one to five parks uh, that have owned for a long time. And, you know, many of them want to keep it in their family for whatever reason. And, and when I say for whatever reason, the, the reason they want to keep it in their family is because they're great assets. Um, so I think it's a ways off. And I know that's not a specific number, but I just don't think that it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. I think there will certainly be groups that continue to get larger, but, um, I think there's still going to be a lot of opportunity out there for, for a while. Well, I appreciate the, appreciate the perspective. You've got a lot of data behind you, so um, definitely interesting perspective. Um, John, before we, before we jump, anything else you want to share? Any tips or tricks? Or if nothing else, too, don't let me forget to give you a chance to plug your, your email or phone number or however people can reach out to you. Sure. Uh I would say the thing is, if, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're relatively new to the space, uh, you want someone to just bounce ideas off, I'm happy to do that. Um, 
or or if you are looking for mobile home parks and you want to buy them, um, I'm happy to to talk to you about that and kind of what your criteria looks like. And you know, we kind of have a, a process that we run people through uh, when they when they tell us that they're looking to buy parks, and we're happy to, to get you through that process. Um, but if you want to call me, my phone number is six one two. Four six zero seven four two nine, and you can always email me at uh, john j o n dot shea s h a y at cbre.com. and uh, you can also give me a follow. I'm on I'm on Twitter uh, and and Instagram uh, mhc broker. All right, I got I don't have the Twitter yet. I got I guess I got to catch up. Or oh, man. Instagram either, man. But that's uh, so actually. Since you mentioned that, uh, I, I think that there is sort of this corner of Twitter, uh, and, and I'm not as active as some of the other folks, but it's called RE Twitter or Real Estate Twitter. There's a lot of really smart uh, folks on there that have, you know, a, a pretty good wealth of experience. And for whatever reason, this little corner of Twitter, people are just sharing information and feedback with each other. Um there's there's some really good resources and and by that I mean just just folks on there that that will walk you through deals they did or deals that they passed on. It's not all manufactured housing, but the concepts are pretty universal. Uh, so if you're trying to learn more about real estate investments in general, uh, I highly recommend getting a little more active on Twitter. Cool, man. That's a good tip. I appreciate it, John. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me, Bird. You got it. Take care. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.